From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Sean Brock is a Southern chef. He thinks a lot about the future of Southern food, where it's going, how it fits into our country's history. And to understand that future, he often finds himself looking toward the past. My way that I want to try and contribute to something that I love is to just ask the question, what are the possibilities of these dishes and traditions? How can we push them a little bit while keeping them the way they are, without making them unrecognizable? Roughly the size of continental Europe, the American South is amazingly diverse. And that applies to people, climate, culture, and food. In his latest book, Sean Brock is showcasing the South in all its manifold glory. It's simply called South. It's so great to have you here. Oh, so great to be here. Thank you. I love how at the beginning of the book, you have these pictures comparing the size of continental Europe to the American South. It's and crazy, huh? It is that. crazy. It's wild. It's really wild. So the South is bigger or as big as continental Europe? Well, it depends on who you ask um, and what your <laughs> definition of continental Europe is. Um, I definitely had some people disagree. But it's the purpose is to look at them side by side and realize that the South isn't this monolithic cuisine. It has so many things that are still haven't even been discovered. And these cuisines that are tucked away in these little corners that books haven't you know been written about them and they haven't been on TV shows and they just kind of live in people's homes. To me, that's really, really fascinating because it makes me realize that I know nothing about Southern food. Well, I've always contended that in places where traditional culture lives, that every single house has its own little mini version of that culture. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. I think it's why food is so endlessly fascinating. So when you think about food like that and a traditional culture like the one you've marinated yourself in all these years, where do you go with that? Do you say... Like, what is cuisine? That's the first question that I had to answer for myself. How do these things happen? How does this food end up on the plate? And trying to understand that has taught me so much about so many things other than food. Because I believe that a cuisine is made up by people, products, and places. And each place has the natives, has the immigrants... And unfortunately, in some cases, people brought there against their will. And those cultures kind of mingle together and create a very unique flavor of one place. And the geography of that place will determine which ingredients can thrive there. And I think when you put those three things together on a piece of paper, you'll be able to start the idea of being able to explore each place. And it's daunting. But endless, which is wonderful for those of us who have given our lives to exploring. And what about the future? That's what's interesting. So I've spent most of my life looking at the history to try and get a better understanding so that I can truly have the most respect for this cuisine as possible. And now I'm thinking towards the future. And if that formula holds up, what does it mean for the future of Southern food and each individual microregion? I think we're such a young country that we have so many more traditions ahead of us that haven't even been born yet. It's true. I'm curious, you grew up in Virginia in a town that had one stoplight. <laughs> Did you run away from Southern cuisine before you ran back to it? I would say that 
when I moved to Charleston, I was 18 and I was going to culinary school. And when you're in culinary school, you focus so much on French technique and fine dining. And there was a period of time where I was very curious about Southern food and I was starting to see the differences between the uh, southern part of Appalachia that I grew up in and the low country. And then there was a moment in my career where I became infatuated with modernist cooking. And then I decided to start growing food and start seed saving. Once I got back in the dirt, I think that's when I came back to all the memories of my grandmother. Talk to us about your grandmother and that relationship and how it grounded you in creating a palate and something that you can refer to. This is really neat, actually. So where I'm from, the cultural influences are Scots-Irish, German, and Native American. Mostly German and Native American from what I've researched. And so my grandmother, whose name was Audrey, and I'm named my restaurant after, she had a garden that I would call a farm. I mean, it was a couple of acres. And it was taken care of with uh, horse-drawn plows, and everything was done the old-fashioned way, planting of the three sisters and seed-saving, you know, beans from multiple generations. And I got to grow up in those gardens, and all of my chores were in those gardens. And I have memories of her reaching into the ground and pulling out ingredients and handing them to me, you know, teaching me when the green bean is at the right maturity and preserving nonstop and prepping nonstop and just cooking all day long. I was just destined to be a cook, I think. Now that you have a family, do you want that same thing for the children? Oh, it has to happen because most of my memories as a child are around food. And luckily now my mother lives in Nashville in the city that I live in. And we're going to till up her front yard. Oh, that's wonderful. So that my son can experience those things with his grandmother. Gosh, that's just like, whew, that's amazing to even think about. It's really powerful and important in the 21st century. In the book, you speak so much about the micro-regions of Southern cooking, as you were talking before, and you use this really smart template as a way of sort of explaining it, where you make the distinction between low country, Appalachia, and the Gulf Coast, the different cooking, using shrimp and grits as a template. Could you share a little bit of that with us? So that came to me when I started opening multiple restaurants in different parts of the South. And shrimp and grits happens to be one of my absolute favorite dishes. And I kind of swore that it would be on every menu. The best shrimp and grits I ever had was at Husk. Oh, wow. Thank you. I think once we started opening them in different places, in Greenville and Savannah and Nashville, and then the original one in Charleston, I knew that that could be a template to showcase the flavors of that place and to try and trigger nostalgia for the people there. And so if you look at that chart, that's the idea. And, and I think the book, I hope, encourages people to do the same thing, to see these recipes as foundations, building blocks, but then make it of your place, the flavors of your place. So some is creamier, others is more austere, some is super cheesy. Yeah, and you get down to the varieties of corn, the corn that thrives in that place and has history in that place the milling traditions, where you are geographically speaking determines the shrimp that you're doing. And then one thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the flavors that you are born into when you're forming your first kind of flavor memories. And for me, there's a lot of sour because of the German uh, influence. And I think that kind of gets stuck back into your subconscious mind. You inherently crave that. And shrimp and grits is a way to start investigating that. So is cornbread. 
you know, cornbread. There are five different recipes in the book, and they bounce around from different areas, showcasing those flavors that are craved in those places. And, you know, it's like music or it's like art. It has to hit a certain spot in your soul to trigger that emotion of being comforted. Can we go back and talk about the immigrant traditions that you grew up with, the Cherokee and the German traditions? Give us some examples of those influences. So once those cultural exchanges start to occur, these very unique recipes and dishes start to form. And the one that comes to mind for me is sour corn, which I've only really ever seen in Appalachia. And it's that idea of the German immigrants craving that sourness and that nostalgia of their place and using Native American ingredients. Those things together, I mean, just when I was a kid, I just, I loved it. And to me, it is an Appalachian dish. Is it a ferment? Yes, it's sauerkraut of corn. And I don't know, it's just amazing. There's another really neat tradition that I touch on in the book that was a great example of a German tradition that became a favored tradition of the Native Americans. And that's taking fully matured green beans and stringing them up and hanging by the fire, allowing them to dry. And that's called shuck beans or shucky beans or, or leather britches. And that became a Native American tradition in that area. And once we start sharing these things, wow, that's just, that's community and that's connection. It's amazing. I remember having conversations with you about your collaboration with Glenn Roberts of Anson Mills, like at the very beginning. What is that, 15 years? Well, I started working with him probably around 2002. Yeah, so 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Do you have more hopefulness about the way at least in the culinary world or parts of the culinary world, there is a focus on saving tradition through seed and about trying to hang on to as much biodiversity. Glenn has influenced and inspired and encouraged so many people to follow in his footsteps. And in the beginning, that was one of my biggest fears. What happens when Glenn stops doing this? What happens when Glenn's not around? Who's going to do this? Like, who's going to keep these things going? Because it's a tremendous amount of work, and you have to be semi-crazy to want to spend that much time and energy and money to save these seeds and repatriate them. And now, seeing this younger generation starting similar companies, similar businesses in their areas has just been incredible. And that gives me so much hope, because these things are important for more reasons than just deliciousness. They carry stories of a place, or a period of time, or a family. And when we eat them, we talk about that. And when we eat that food, we think about it. And so every time I eat Hoppin' John or cook Hoppin' John, I'm gut-wrenched by thinking about how terrible slavery was. But it's that food that is a constant reminder that we have to be better than that. And if that's the conversation at the table, that's the power of food. So let's move to something we can all agree is delicious, deviled eggs. <laughs> yes. They always bring people to the table. And the secret to yours is what? So pickled juice is in this recipe, and that was taught to me a long time ago. Wow, maybe 15 years ago by a friend named Tyler Brown, who I still hang out with a great deal in Nashville. And that pickle juice, those little tiny things that you'll find in different homes, these tiny little tricks and secrets and just little things that kind of get slid in that make such a special and unique cuisine. Yeah, it's always my favorite thing. You know, I'm an Italophile, so my thing is being with ladies 
in Italy, and it's always just watching and seeing, like, the tiny drizzle of something. My mom still keeps all those secrets from me. Really? I don't know if it's just so intuitive for her that she doesn't realize that these little tiny things are really important. But every time I cook with her, I pick up something. Yeah, that's wonderful. Talk about country ham. I think it's our jewel in the crown, you know. I think it's an amazing tradition that has gotten better and better and better. I mean, I've tasted southern hams recently that are as good as they can possibly be. I mean, a slice of ham that can just make you the happiest person in the world. And it's a simple tradition. But here's what's neat about it. Each area has a different technique, a different tradition, a different recipe, a different wood, a different cure, different atmosphere for the curing, different amounts of time. And all of those are unique to that part of the South. And that's why we created a country ham roadmap in the book. I love that. For me, that's better than a whiskey map. I know I'm going to get pushback for that, but <laughs> well, it's I'm, I can say with great confidence that it's better for me. <laughs> <laughs> for most of us, I would say. Um, what is Perlu, and why doesn't it get recognized as frequently? Perlu is a great example of Spanish influences and African influences coming together. You see it as jambalaya in New Orleans, and you see it as paella in Spain. And you see a lot of these one-pot rice and seafood dishes in West Africa. I don't know, maybe because people can't pronounce it. <laughs> I don't know why. There's so many different ways to pronounce it and to spell it. But it's one of my absolute favorite dishes. And I think it's rare because it's really hard to pull off in a restaurant setting. Because it has to be served the second that it's done. It can't be served and held and then reheated, which is the way a lot of restaurants have to operate. So maybe that's why. So you're here in L.A., you're on book tour. Where are you going to be eating? I love Angler. I, I, I think I've eaten at Angler like five times already. <laughs> and I live on the other side of the country between San Francisco and here. I just really admire his cooking, Josh Skeen's. I admire the way he um, embraces minimalism and simplicity. But when you eat it, I actually get angry when I eat the food. It's so delicious and it's so simple. <laughs> I mean, a I, little competitive. <laughs> I, I had I had a salad there that was just lettuces on a plate, and like I wanted just to get up and leave after I tasted a bite of it. It was so good. It was just amazing. I love Destroyer a lot as well. I always go to Destroyer. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Sean. Oh goodness, thank you for having me. That's Sean Brock. He's the founding chef of Husk Restaurants and a forthcoming restaurant in Nashville. We've been discussing his latest cookbook, South. After the break, we're turning to the southern origins of eggnog, just in time for the holidays. That's when Good Food continues. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Continuing our focus on Southern foodways, we now turn to Virginia, where there's a rich culture of mixing cocktails. 
in 2017, the Culinary History Podcast called The Feast looked at this fascinating history, which includes the origins of eggnog. It's a great segment, and I thought you might like to hear it. Here's medievalist and culinary historian Laura Carlson. Let's look at another classic winter cocktail, one that has a long and sometimes unfortunate history in the United States. That's right, we're going to talk nog. Eggnog, that is. And in terms of anecdotal histories of beverages, it's hard to top nog. Yes, eggnog, that old holiday chestnut. Known too often as the bane of the holiday office party, this beverage is precisely where we're going to start our demolition of some long-standing cocktail confusion. Micah and I are here to officially set the record straight on eggnog, and why Virginia in particular has a special relationship to this holiday treat. It all started way back in merry old medieval England. Hold on a second, that's way too far back. If there has been one, there has been a thousand articles and stories written about eggnog's murky origins as something called posset, a popular drink or custard that was the hit of the Middle Ages. So popular, of course, it inspired an entire variety of drinkware known as posset pots. And seriously, that's worth a Google image search, but we'll put a few examples on our website if you don't know what we're talking about. Now, very briefly, if you've managed to escape the posset party thus far, this concoction was often a heated, milky, eggy, often boozy beverage to keep medieval folks warm during the cold days of winter. Not so much a specific recipe, posset could take any number of adaptations. Sherry, for example, was a popular ingredient, leading to more than a few people referring to the beverage as sack posset, with sack as another word for sherry. So long before any cocktail guide, by Jerry Thomas or otherwise, the concept of posset, or as it would eventually become known in North America as nog, was a pretty adaptable beverage, usually requiring an egg or maybe some cream, things often available to the agrarian communities of early North America. But that was pretty much it. The availability of cream and milk, combined with an easy access, at least for a time, with Caribbean rum, meant that eggnog became North America's go-to beverage. By the 1790s, writers were commenting on how much Americans seemed to love a version of nog, including beaten egg, milk, cream, and rum, which they would enjoy as a breakfast drink on chilly winter mornings. There was even a riot over an eggnog ban at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in the 1820s, when cadets went nuts when they were prohibited from drinking their spiked holiday nog. For the next 100 years, until American Prohibition was implemented in 1920, alcoholic eggnog was such a part of American holiday traditions, there were even eggnog-themed parties, where folks would travel from house to house, enjoying every household's slightly different take on the classic winter warmer. And by Jerry Thomas's day in the 1860s, Eggnog, or variations of it, were still so popular, he includes not one, but four different recipes in his book, including a sherry version, which seems to be the closest descendant of that original sack posset medieval recipe, not to mention a recipe for Baltimore eggnog, featuring both rum and Madeira wine, 
And then there's an intriguing recipe for something called General Harrison's eggnog, which is another name for old Tippecanoe. That is, U.S. President William Henry Harrison, a man often remembered for catching cold at his presidential inauguration in 1841 and promptly dying one month later. But even 20 years after his death in the 1860s, his preferred eggnog recipe apparently lived on in Thomas's book, which swaps out any fortified liquor for hard apple cider combined with egg and sugar. Now, I recently tried General Harrison's nog recipe, and I have to admit, it's way better than you'd expect. We'll put a recipe for it up on the website if you want to toast old Tippecanoe, too. But let's get back to Virginia and Micah at the Alley Light. Around this time of year, Micah also continues the tradition of American nog at the bar. Yeah, I mean, eggnog is essentially liquid ice cream. I, I've found my recipe um, just on, like on like a little chow hound thread and uh, just minimally tweaked it, added just a little vanilla and cinnamon and some nutmeg on it. And it's, yeah, it's just so delicious. It tastes like ice cream. I really like using uh, uh, brandy with it. I've been been adding some uh, some apple brandy. We've got this uh, distillery just down the road, Laird's. They make a really good uh, seven and a half year uh, apple brandy. It's really tasty. Um, also like using rum. To me, bourbon can overpower an eggnog, but for people who love bourbon, um, they love bourbon eggnog. While Micah may have found his recipe for eggnog online, interestingly enough, with his apple brandy base, he may be making a more historically inspired Virginia style of eggnog than he knows. Like the Madeira wine that went into Jerry Thomas's Baltimore eggnog, recipes from the 1890s specify that a Virginia eggnog has to be made with, well, you guessed it, apple brandy, with sometimes a little bit of rum added for more flavor. So Mike is accidentally making a hundred-year-old recipe of iconically Virginian eggnog. Now, before we leave you, speaking of internet recipes, it's time to put at least one cocktail myth to bed, also involving eggnog and also involving Virginia. Home to Mount Vernon, the residence of the first president of the United States, George Washington. And like many stories involving old George, there are more than a few articles floating around online that claim to be old GW's official recipe for eggnog. Even the tried-and-true Farmer's Almanac claims a specific recipe as authentic, which includes sherry, brandy, rum, rye whiskey, along with the traditional cream, milk, sugar, and eggs. But alas, dear listeners, the internet yet again can lead you astray. While records show that George and Martha Washington indeed loved their nog just as much as any other North American in the 1790s, what version they actually served seems to have been lost to the sands of time. The potent concoction that the farmer's almanac lists only surfaced as a recipe in the 1940s in a small booklet by one Olive Bailey entitled, appropriately enough, Christmas with the Washingtons. Now, having made and tested this potent, potentially presidential potation, say that five times fast, I can assure you it is delicious. But try not to read too much into its historical veracity. At most, 
let's just say it blends some of the iconic alcohols included in eggnog throughout American history. And besides, Micah's version is way better. We've included Micah's recipe on our website, along with, of course, the dubious George Washington version, so you can make some historical, or maybe not-so-historical variations of eggnog at your own Mount Vernon this season. Thanks to Laura Carlson of The Feast and the Podglomerate Podcast Network for sharing this segment with us. To hear a longer version of this story, visit thefeastpodcast.org. The Feast has also just released a new episode continuing this exploration of Virginian alcohol traditions. It's available now. You won't want to miss it. Season 4 of The Feast premieres January 7th, and I highly recommend you subscribe. Traditional Southern cooking is often thought of as a meaty cuisine with its reliance on staples like ham hocks and sausage. The idea of a Southern vegan almost sounds like an oxymoron. But that's what Timothy Packran calls himself. It's kind of jarring when you see it because it doesn't really make sense. And, you know, my job is to prove to you that it does make sense. I'm still making delicious Southern food. It's just I use different ingredients. He's a recipe developer and home cook who believes in plant-based Southern cooking. Last year, I spoke with him about his book called Mississippi Vegan. First of all, the name is just so great. When did you kind of own that that's who you were? I wanted to create this concept when I was living in New York and I wanted to take the take the dive into food photography and and being creative with food and documenting it in an artful way. I wanted to kind of merge my past and my present and because I'm from Mississippi that has strongly influenced you know the food that I grew up eating and love and, and still make and then also that I'm vegan it kind of just made sense. So let's talk a bit about that. Do you remember the first time you had a successful cooking session of substitution? I hate to use the word substitution because it implies that the food in some way isn't real or 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 soulful. But the first time you wanted to really recreate something that you had a deep fondness for, but within the new context of the way you eat. Mm-hmm. So I went vegan when I was 20. And I had been cooking all throughout my teenage years, and one of the first things I learned to cook was gumbo. And so when I was in college, I loved having people over to entertain, and I loved having dinner parties, and I loved cooking. I always have. So when I went vegan, I still wanted to make gumbo, so I just made gumbo. And I really just changed my perception of food, so I stopped viewing animal products as food. So when I made gumbo, I said, okay, well, I'm not going to use that. And then I realized that certain plants and mushrooms can really elevate the dish and make it taste equally as delicious. So it was probably in my early 20s when I made gumbo that I realized that I could do it. And then I remember on Thanksgiving that I that I had with my friends, they all asked me for the recipes because I made like a green bean casserole and cornbread stuffing and, and mashed potatoes and gravy. And they all asked me for the recipes. So And they weren't vegan, so I knew that I was doing something right. So t- talk us through a bit about the gumbo. There's When I think of gumbo, I think of andouille sausage. And mm-hmm. in the book, you talk about andouille sausage in such a smart way. Could you break that down for us? Yeah, so, you know, in, in actuality, what we're craving when we think about andouille sausage 
is not like this happy, squishy living pig. We're really craving the technique of flavors and the technique of cooking that have been applied to it. So you really break it down. It's smoked. So you have that beautiful smoky flavor, which as everyone knows, you can smoke almost anything and it's going to give it that beautiful flavor. Liquid smoke is a great example of something that you can use in cooking to give that depth of flavor. And then you look at traditional Cajun Creole spices that they use, like cayenne pepper, white pepper, black pepper, thyme, oregano, even sage, onion, garlic. That's what makes the andouille sausage delicious. So I I realized that if I add a little bit more of everything, of all those spices, because you have to think about it, if you remove the andouille sausage, then you're removing it, you know, it's it, it may say one ingredient in the ingredient list, like andouille sausage, but that's really 30 ingredients. So as many of those ingredients as I can add back to the gumbo, I'm going to do it. And I do it in the book. So I have to ask you a kind of random question. Did you find yourself as a way of shortcutting your cooking, making certain blends, like all those things that, that you've talked about that make andouille sausage taste like andouille sausage? Did you put together a blend so that you could just throw it in and not start from scratch every time? Yes. So, and, and my editor helped me realize this. For the gumbo, we basically have a, a gumbo spice blend, which is on a separate page because we wanted to kind of streamline the recipe. So, when you see it, it's not jarring to see like all these ingredients. So, and that spice blend is great for anything. You could put it on popcorn, roasted vegetables, and rice, whatever. So, there is a separate spice blend. And then, I also call for, like, I have a mushroom barley sausage that you can use in a lot of different recipes, or I have, like, a a smoky baked tofu that you can use. And those are all kind of standalone recipes. They may be featured in a recipe, but in the end, they're standalone recipes that you can use in other recipes. One of the things I noticed when I was looking through the book is that you really dig in. You, You love making things. Mm-hmm. rather than using a lot of store-bought products as replacements. Could you talk a little bit about that? Totally. As a part of the whole process, I wanted to have those recipes that made things from scratch, like mayo or a vegan sausage or a gumbo spice blend or you know different um, vegan-based cheeses that I can use in, in recipes. But I also emphasize in the book that that's only if you want to take that on. You know, there's an opportunity for you to try something and learn. But I also encourage people to buy something store-bought. And that's what makes a lot of Southern recipes so easy. No Southern mom is is making mayonnaise and using it for their chicken salad or their potato salad. You know what I mean? So I, I have a mayo recipe, and it's more kind of... Because I really view this book as a body of work. It's really like an artistic expression. So... I wanted to have those recipes because they were important to me to have in the book. But whatever is going to make it easier for you and more approachable for you to get in the kitchen and cooking, that's the point. That's what a good recipe does. It just makes you want to cook. Okay, so let's take that thought and then let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. First of all, you're an amazing, accomplished, art-level photographer. So you make some of the food look so incredibly appealing. I was absolutely fascinated by the shiitake mushroom bacon that was wrapped in the rice paper. Mm, That's a good one. 
when I when I look at the photograph, I keep looking at it and looking at it and and trying to detect the differences in it as I'm looking through the rice paper, which you can't see anyway. Could you talk a bit about how you create that? Yeah, sure. So once again, going back to bacon, you know, what are we really craving? We want something that's fatty and crunchy and crispy and chewy and smoky all at the same time. That's why it's such an amazing food. That's why people love it. So with the rice paper, it's just like the rice paper that Asian restaurants use to make a spring roll. So you wet the rice paper, but instead of just wetting it with water, I'm also adding this marinade of tamari, which is just bursting with flavor and liquid smoke and some nutritional yeast for a savory umaminess. And then instead of just making bacon out of that, I'm putting in shiitake mushrooms, so thin slices of shiitake mushrooms. And what happens when you wrap it up into a little strip and you bake it, the moisture from the shiitake mushroom gives it the chewiness while the outside, the rice paper, gets really crunchy and crispy. And in that particular recipe, I put a little bit of maple syrup and mustard just to give it that like tang and sweetness. And so when you take a bite of it, it's just an explosion of texture and flavor. And it's super fun. And it's really easy to make. And it's gluten-free. So, <laughs> And it's a project for people who enjoy crafting. <laughs> totally. You know, that's how I view all of this. I really, I went to to college for studio art. And when I took sculpture, it was one of my favorite classes because I was just using my hand to create sculptures. And then I took photography. And that's when you just learn how to document something that's beautiful and beautiful light. And so that's really what I'm doing in the kitchen. And with all of the recipes in my book and all the photographs that I take, I'm just having a glorified arts and crafts, you know, experiment in my house with edible food. And then I'm documenting it in a really beautiful, sometimes dramatic way. That was author Timothy Packran talking to me last year about his book, Mississippi Vegan. After the break, we're looking at how race and story of Southern food are inextricably linked. That's when Good Food continues. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleinman. Tony Tipton Martin is a culinary journalist and founding member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. In 2015, I spoke with her about her groundbreaking book. It's called The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. It's a bibliography that reveals the culinary legacies of the real men and women pushed aside by history. Let's dig in a little bit. One of the things that I find really fascinating is the comparison to how these days we hear about young chefs, quote, staging at the hand of an experienced and often famous pro. And we talk about how tough these old-fashioned apprenticeships are that can last a few years. And yet, the people, particularly in the beginning of your bibliography, who wrote these books, went through much more challenging apprenticeships to end up feeding white families with tremendous skill and creativity. Could you speak a bit about that? Yeah. So when we think about culinary apprenticeships, we generally don't apply those practices to African-Americans who have worked in the kitchen uh, under the tutelage of of other professional and talented and wise cooks or chefs. Um, That's part of the rationale for the title, the Jemima Code. We live with codes every day, and they're a way of communicating a message from one entity to another 
using symbols, this Aunt Jemima symbol has been encoded with so many multiple characteristics and and behaviors and thoughts about a group of people that has provoked other groups of people to have a response to them, if that makes any sense. And so if that original um, line of thinking was that these were people who were performing all of the hard labor and doing so without much intelligence or conveying any levels of professionalism, no technique, uh, not really practicing any management skills, then they go down in history as unimportant, as unintelligent, or they go down in history as immensely talented cooks, but that somehow they learned it through, or they were gifted with it through some kind of uh, voodoo magic or, or a mystique, natural instinct if you will. And and so what I wanted to do was be sure that that we are clear that these people trained on the job beginning at very very early ages as enslaved children. They would have been out in the woods with their moms hunting berries and collecting wild nuts. They would have observed and participated in things like plucking feathers from chickens. And and those are skills today that, that we revere and pay lots of money for and give lots of credit to modern chefs for having that knowledge. You quote a woman, Tara Hunter, saying that everything she does is out of her head. It's all brain work. And and you characterize it as really the a miracle of of memory and oral transmission. So this all happens in a a place and a moment where it's illegal to teach slaves to read and write. That's right. And Tara Hunter, by the way, is the scholar who actually did quite a bit of work about women, research about women and their work. And that quote is from a formerly enslaved woman um, who was interviewed in the 30s during uh, the Works Progress Administration's interviews with former slaves. And so these are people who would have been children in slavery, um, but were now senior citizens reflecting on what life had been like for them. And Here, without knowing it, is this elderly woman who's talking about something that the chef Michael Ruhlman called mental mise en place. And that is the idea that everything has to be in its place and organized before one gets started in the kitchen so that you aren't running next door to borrow that proverbial cup of sugar, if you will. And so here are these cooks who have been working that way their entire lives. They had no ability to read or write, and yet they memorized hundreds of recipes working either for employers in domestic servitude or as caterers, um, as hoteliers, and then, of course, as, as enslaved peoples. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Tony Tipton Martin, Her new book, The Jemima Code, introduces over 150 Black cookbooks almost lost to history. So I'd love to drill down into some of the examples of the books in your collection. Um, And and let's start with the first one, The House Servant's Directory by Robert Roberts. Uh, I mean, wow. When you you read that book and, and you see how much... Um, house workers were expected to know it's to say that they weren't 
skilled managers is it's just insane. Yeah, Robert Roberts was the butler in the governor's mansion in Massachusetts. And what I love about him is exactly is exactly as you describe it. From him we learn a few recipes of course, but what we really learn about him is his work ethic and what he valued for workers uh, in the household, how to run a fine home in New England. And what shouldn't be lost on any of us is the degree of minutia that that involved, things like understanding how many inches the tablecloth could hang on either side of the ends of the table or which direction the flower bowl should face. And there are dozens and dozens of other examples because, of course, he is training someone to follow in his footsteps. And so this person does have to know all of that. But he also communicates to them the nuances of interpersonal skills. He's very interested in cleanliness and being prompt at work. And he isn't the only one. That that kind of messaging uh, really shows up throughout the period of 150 years that we chose to profile in the book. Um, Many of the earlier collections were either self-published or they were privately funded by free women of color and former slaves. Was it more common to have a former slave who, who, after slavery, managed to become quite successful as a caterer, for example, or a small manufacturer um, be discovered by their white clients and have those white clients bring out a book? Well, the practice of white clients publishing uh, the recipes of their black servants, whether they were employees or caterers, is quite, quite popular. What changes over time is how visible the white transcriber right? That's what these people were, was the transcriber for someone who was unable to read or write. The degree of their involvement, their physical presence in the storyline is what changes. Um, So over time, white people were involved very much in the publishing of these books, from the initial wanting to just create more employees to ultimately a time period where they wanted to claim responsibility for the intelligence and the creative outcomes, the recipes that these people were making. Um, And so they degraded them. In the 30s, they began to really demoralize these women in particular through images and words that made the Black cooks seem like buffoons. So what volume is is generally cited as the first American cookbook to be published under the name of an African-American writer? Well, um, the Robert Roberts book is significant um, beyond just its um, being the first in this collection and the first of what we know to be a book that has any recipes in it. Um, But it's also um, the first book that we know of, uh, of any kind, that was published by an African-American in the trade. Um, But for a long time, it's been disregarded in food circles because it's not strictly a recipe book. Um, So in that way, the very first book to be self-published by an African-American comes in 1866, and it was published by a free woman of color named Melinda Russell. And Melinda Russell uh, explains quite a bit about herself. She tells us 
her motives for publishing. Um, she's trying to raise money to return home to Tennessee. She has a handicapped child. So I really like talking about her as a working woman. She's an amazing inspiration to today's young women who find themselves on the fringes of society, frustrated young mothers, not sure which way to turn. And here's a woman who, just a year after slaves were free, um, is publishing a book and talking about her abilities as a caterer and the gratitude she has for the white women in her community who help her get published so she can go home. So let's talk about Aunt Jemima. Are, are there campaigns to get rid of her? And, and are black cooks today still being marginalized? I have seen a campaign by some young people on the Internet who at one point were lobbying Quaker to remove her image from the package, but I'm not entirely sure that that's the response we should be having to that trademark. Um, I like to challenge uh, researchers to find out how much money she's made uh, as a corporate trademark um, and to recognize her quality, you know, the value that she's conveyed for that product. In terms of how we're still treated in this industry, I I don't think that um, a lot has changed. Um, I took this book project to the internet in a blog form because I couldn't get it published. And so I took the message to the internet and lo and behold, UT Press came along and did respect the material and accepted the challenge. And that was really a positive statement for us all that there is hope that we can come together as one around the table if we leave all of those artificially contrived differences at the door. That was Tony Tipton-Martin talking to me in 2015. Her groundbreaking book is The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. I'm pleased to say she recently released a book containing recipes from many of those books. It's called Jubilee, Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking. After the break, we close out with a new restaurant review from Bill Addison. Stick around. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Now, here's Bill Addison with a new restaurant review. Hi, Bill. Hi, Evan. Where are we headed? We are headed to Mid-City, to arguably the best Korean restaurant outside of Koreatown. It will deceive you at first, this place. It's called Spoon by H, and it looks like a charming, whimsical little dessert cafe. And indeed, there are some really fantastic, refreshing shaved ice desserts that are beautiful and decorated with berries. And it's incredibly impressive. It comes from the mind of owner Yoon Jin Huang, and she makes beautiful, savory food that got a lot of attention last year because David Chang Instagrammed that it was his restaurant of the year. And the thing that he highlighted, which indeed is one of the great dishes of Los Angeles right now, is her pork belly and dumpling soup. So imagine a tonkatsu ramen broth, milky, but milky from like the porky creaminess with rice cakes and these really beautifully pleated dumplings and kind of a bacony thread running through it, mung bean glass noodles, 
carrots, zucchini, fried onions, chili flakes. It's a work of art, this thing. It sounds like a lot, but all the flavors land exactly where they should. The textures are exciting. No one bite is the same. It's an amazing soup. And it seems like it'll keep you sated for hours to come. Yeah, but not in like a super heavy way. Like in an umami, I just put something nutritious in my body, but also like resonated through my palate in a way that will keep me thinking happy thoughts. <laughs> so what else did you love there? So she does a version of the soup with short ribs that's excellent, but you get the pork belly dumpling version first. And then the other thing that I really love there is the waffles. And she puts a little bit of rice flour. <gasps> and so they're not served particularly warm, but they're perfect. They're crackly. And she serves them with berries and chocolate and whipped cream, but it never disappears entirely. So are you eating the waffle in the same meal that you're eating the pork dumpling situation? Oh, or yes. are you going for another? No. Oh, no. I'm eating the pork dumpling soup and then I'm eating the waffle. I mean, I'm a little crazy, but I'm definitely not alone in this. Wow. When David was talking about it, it sounded like it was a secret situation that you had to know a kind of handshake to be able to access these dishes. The secret is 100% out. They are now listed on a menu, um, a big sprawling menu that includes all the shaved ice set possibilities and boba drinks and tea and coffee sets. But the savory menu remains relatively short. There's also fantastic kimchi fried rice on there. And on a mounted iPad at the counter where you order, there are also some daily specials to flip through. So much more than shaved ice. So this is a place to go with a fair number of people so that you can really plunder. Yes. And I think a lot of groups do come in and really, like, take their time. The food, I should say, because she sometimes gets a little overwhelmed, can take a little while to come out. Maybe you don't want to come here with a group in a hurry, but you come here with the group and you kind of work your way through the menu. Can you go in between lunch and dinner? Is it open all day? Yes, it is open all day. Okay. So that's, that's the move. That's the pro move. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks for having me, Evan. I've been talking with Bill Addison, restaurant critic for the LA Times. Just so you know, Spoon by H was one of my picks on a list of five great neighborhood restaurants that's going out to KCRW members. Look for it soon. Now for the Market Report, here's Jillian Ferguson. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. When it comes to produce, there is no one I trust more than Karen Beverlin. Karen is the vice president of specialty produce for Fresh Point, but many of us know her as the produce hunter. Hi, Karen. Hi, Jillian. <laughs> so, Karen, before we get into what's in season right now, can you tell us a little bit about what a produce hunter does? Well, I don't know what all produce hunters do, but in my case, I'm responsible for shopping the farmer's market and identifying items that I think chefs would like, and then either getting samples of those items into the hands of our chefs or 
just saying, here, you should buy this. And trying to be seasonal and stay in really close contact with the farmers so that we know when something's coming because we always want to be first. So needless to say, you are an expert in shopping the farmer's market. And I thought today we could talk about pumpkins. Do you have a favorite type of pumpkin that you like to recommend to your chefs? I like two kinds of pumpkins, European pumpkins in this case, one that comes originally from France and one that comes originally from Italy, and then orange kabocha, which is a Japanese pumpkin. Those are my two types, three pumpkins. Two types, three pumpkins. All right, so walk us through each one. Okay, so Marina di Chioggia is my favorite Italian pumpkin, and it's super unapproachable looking. It's like the oyster of pumpkins. So it's super bumpy all around and it kind of looks kind of gnarly. It has super thick walls, but it's delicious. And it makes amazing puree and the texture is beautiful. And I did have a really fun experience with that. I read somewhere that the best baked potato, baked russet is if you brine it before you bake it. I'm like, oh my God, that's genius. So I decided I was going to brine one of these big, huge pumpkins. And when it went into the brine, I called a chef. I called Michael Simaresti and said, what kind of brine do I use and how long do I brine it for? And so he said three to 5%. So I did three because, you know, I'm scared, risk averse. And I brined it, but I brined it for like six hours. And then I baked it whole in the oven at like 325 for I think four hours just until it was fork tender and it was beautiful it's like I cut a wedge and it came out as this beautiful wedge and then I could just like scrape the seeds out and it was delicious I do think I'm going to try brining for longer Uh but it was so fun all right so take us to pumpkin number two okay pumpkin number two is from originally from France and that's Mosqueda Provence the Mosqueda Provence is much more beautiful than the very sad-looking marina, but it's has super highly lobed, you know, so it's got deep, deep crevices all the way around, and it just looks kind of elegant. And um, it can be green or have a tinge of orange or be kind of a solid taupe. So it's better on color, and it caramelizes beautifully because it has a good sugar content. This is another very thick-walled pumpkin. Our final pumpkin is super popular, and it's delicious. So there are two kabochas that are here at the market. There's green, and then there's the orange. And the green is more vegetable kind of focused. It tastes more vegetable-y. But the orange has higher sugar and is delicious. And it has thinner walls, but the skin is edible. So that's super nice. Yeah, it makes it very easy. So I think that we should all embrace pumpkin all the way through fall and into winter. I think that's a great idea. Karen, every time I talk to you, I learn so much. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks, Jillian. That was Karen Beverlin, Vice President of Specialty Produce for Fresh Point. If you're not following her on Instagram, you should be. It's at FP Produce Hunter. Mike Roberts is a farmer with McGrath Family Farms up in Camarillo, and He is one of the farmers who is bringing the European varietals that Karen just talked about to the market. Mike, we're looking at two pretty gnarly (laughs) pumpkins in front of us. We have the Chioja, right? The Marina de Chioja. 
Marina de Chioggia, the oh, Italians yeah. have told me, but you might be right. And then this one here is what? Musc de Provence, a okay. French variety. So the Musc de Provence, or Musquet de Provence, right. is um, an orange-fleshed pumpkin here. And the Marina de Chioggia is a green, warty-looking right. pumpkin here. How long have these been in the ground? When did you guys plant these? So these are the brainchild of one of uh, my farming mentors, Phil McGrath and Paul Thurston, and they've come up with all these, uh, discovered a lot of these different varieties, again, influenced by Karen from Fresh Point and all the chefs that she works with and we work with. So we put these in the ground in May, May, June, and then they're going to grow for about, they take a little bit longer than a traditional pumpkin or squash, maybe closer to three, four months, and then we'll let them cure in the field for about a month to really get that flavor and color. And uh, then we bring them to market after that. And I'll say Karen has been pretty much cleaning us out this year. So we have uh, definitely, you know, some for our, of course, our loyal customers here on the table. But she's been really supporting big time this year with these. All right, great. Well, thank you, Mike. Yeah, thank you, guys. That was Mike Roberts. He's one of the farmers with McGrath Family Farms up in Camarillo. Come and check out his pumpkins at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. That's it for our show this week. In case you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, leave us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks to the Good Food team, Nick Liao, Laurel Garcia, Joseph Stone, Chuck Previtary, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Jacqueline Kim, Laura Kondarajan, and Amy Ta. I'm Evan Kleiman. I'll be back next week with more Good Food.